division, division, difference, is an inescapable part of life. Everywhere we go, we see division, we see difference. For those of us who are gathered here this morning, for those watching online, there are many things that divide us. Some of you here this morning, you are part of the enlightened. You are part of that wonderful community who knows down in their hearts that the University of Nebraska is the greatest college football program in history. Those of you that aren't part of that enlightened group, you are still in your sins, and we will pray for you. But we recognize that there are things that divide us and separate us. There are things like our favorite sports team or our favorite players, favorite movies or our favorite actor, favorite foods and restaurants. We debate and we divide over these things, and largely it's harmless, or at least it should be. I have been in some pretty heated debates about sports, and you wondered if that relationship was going to last through that argument. Some of you have been there. But there are things that divide us, and there are differences that really don't separate us. They don't outright divide us and create rifts and relationships. But we also recognize there are deeper divides. The political parties that we belong to, sadly, the color of our skin can divide. Our social class our religious beliefs, how we choose to educate our kids, and many, many other issues. Division along these lines, while it's a little bit deeper, doesn't necessarily have to divide us or outright divide us, but sometimes it does. And too often, division along these lines and along things like them ends up becoming toxic and unhealthy division. Relationships a road, trust breaks down, communities are weakened, people suffer, and because relationships break down, they suffer more because there's no one to care for one another. We also see how loneliness can spike and conflict intensifies when we're divided. Do we not see that in our country right now, in our society right now? Deeply divided. We see such unhealthy and destructive division taking place all around us. And sadly, Sadly, that unhealthy and destructive division takes place in the church. Sadly, we as Christians divide in ways where relationships erode, trust breaks down, people suffer because we're not loving and caring for one another, conflict intensifies, loneliness intensifies, and the damage that is done when churches divide, the damage and the destruction to our souls and to our faith and I know that there are some of you here this morning, you've experienced deep and painful division in the church. And it has a, had a negative impact on your faith. It has damaged your faith in Christ. Maybe you're here this morning, you feel like you're hanging on by a thread because of the division that you've experienced in church. And can I say with all sincerity, I am sorry that has happened to you. And I also want you to know more so than I'm sorry, I want you to know that God says that is not okay. God cares deeply about your faith in your heart and it troubles him when his church is divided and when that division does damage to people's faith. And so church, for us this morning, recognizing deep division in the way that it has affected us is important because we have to be honest about the situation. We have to be honest about the reality and the world that we live in and the dynamics that we inhabit. See, the book of 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul 
to probably one of the most messy churches in history. This church was as messy as it gets. And one of the core problems in the Corinthian church was division. There was unhealthy and destructive division. And so Paul writes to confront this and to reorient them to the one thing that actually can bring unity. Because look, just like a nation and all the diversity of people requires something bigger than all the difference in order to remain united, the church in all of our diversity, see the church is made up of people of different ethnicities and social classes different genders and jobs. It's made up of people from different cultures that speak different languages. It's made up of people with different theological beliefs on particular issues. We, have, we belong to different political parties. Differences abound in the church, but what is meant to unite us all is the one thing that the Apostle Paul is going to remind us of this morning in this passage. If we are going to be united around our differences, if we're not going to divide in unhealthy ways, there must be something greater than all of those differences. And so First City Church, for us, if we're going to be united, if we're going to be a united church amidst all the difference, all the beautiful diversity that exists, if we're going to be a church that is united when the culture around us is fighting and clamoring and dividing, then our hearts must, must be captured by something greater than all the difference. Our hearts must be oriented to something that cuts through all the difference. And we say, yeah, all that difference is there. And some of it is important, some of it isn't. But there's something greater that I look to, something greater that unites me to my brothers and sisters. And so here is the main point for us this morning from this passage. When we exalt self, we divide. When we exalt Christ, we unite. Let me say that again. When we exalt self, we divide. When we exalt Christ, we unite. And so if you have your Bibles, Bible apps, we're looking particularly at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17. And verse 10 marks the beginning of the body of the letter. So last week we looked at the introduction here we are moving into the main part of this letter. And it transitions, verse 10 transitions from the greeting to the purpose of Paul writing to them. This is what he says in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So before we, we jump into this whole issue of unity, uh, something that I want us to, to keep in mind as we go through this entire study of 1 Corinthians. Something right here at the beginning that, that the, the Apostle Paul does that sort of sets the tone and the tenor for this entire letter. Look, he is going to bring correction. Some of it's strong. He is going to confront them. The gloves are off in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul is coming hard. He's coming strong because what is at stake is significant. However, look what he does right here at the beginning. I appeal to you, brothers. He is making an appeal. He is asking. He is, he is petitioning them. He's not yelling at them. He, he's not condemning them. He's appealing to them. And he's appealing as a brother. He speaks to them as family. Look, this church is a mess. I know I keep saying this, but it is a mess. You think First City Church has problems 
Hey, we are the sparkling image of health compared to the church in Corinth in the first century. This church was not only a mess, this church was messy to Paul in particular. They bucked his authority. They doubted him. They were in conflict. They were prideful and divisive. They hurt Paul. They challenged him. Paul had, at times, an adverse relationship with them. He was the kind, of, the kind of church that kept the apostle Paul up at night. And yet, in all of that, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. He speaks to them as family. He, he's committed to them. He loves them. He wants them to be built up in Christ. He, he isn't writing just to lay into them and then say, peace out. He's appealing them to, to them as a brother. At the same time, his appeal comes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He isn't making just some suggestions here. He isn't giving them some nice things. What he's saying isn't like, hey, if you want to listen to me, go ahead. No, he's saying what I have to say is authoritative. What I have to say comes with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so the Apostle Paul is bringing instruction and correction that carries a weight and, and a importance to it. These are matters of life and death. These are matters of whether they are going to be thriving in Jesus and united or whether this church is going to be divisive and it's going to be destructive to the souls and the spiritual health of these Christians. And I want to highlight this because First City Church, as we live life in community, as we navigate the mess and the things that threaten to pull our unity apart, how are we going to respond to one another? Are we going to appeal to one another as family? Are we going to appeal to one another as brothers and sisters? Or are we going to be divisive? Are we going to be angry with one another? Are we going to be tempted to just try to burn the whole thing down, scream and emotionally unload on people, and then peace out? Or maybe you're too spiritual for that and you just passively, aggressively peace out. Or, or what about this error? In trying to speak in love, are we going to pull punches? Are we going to sort of back away from the authority of God's word and just sort of make suggestions to one another? as if these things aren't matters of life and death and the health of our souls? Are we going to give good advice or are we going to speak the good news of the gospel to one another? And so as we navigate the mess, church, we need to hear the, the message of 1 Corinthians. We need to receive. We need to be humble. We need the correction for our own souls. But as we speak to one another, Let's appeal to one another as brothers and sisters. Let's be committed to one another. Let's love one another. Let's be all in. But let's also bring the gospel, God's word, authoritative truth. Let's not mess around with half-truths and nice suggestions. Let's bring the life-giving truth of the gospel. So th this is the whole tone and tenor with which I want us to engage 1 Corinthians. And as we learn to live this out, as we engage one another, let this define the way that we speak to one another and engage one another. Now, at the heart of Paul's appeal is a call to unity. He wants them to agree. He, he says, have no division among yourselves. Be united in mind and judgment. And what's causing the division? What's the nature of the division the, first, the church in Corinth was experiencing? Well, verses 12, 11 and 12 tell us, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So essentially what's happening in the, the church is that there are cliques. 
building up around particular leaders. And so to understand how this even happened, let me set the context here a little bit for you. In the book of Acts, which is this wonderful history of the early church, in, the chap- in Acts 18, we see the apostle Paul goes to the city of Corinth and he plants a church there. And as was Paul's method, he would spend time getting that church established. Then he would move on to the next city to go plant more churches. And so he spends about a year and a half in Corinth getting this church established and then moves on. And after Paul leaves, a number of other well-known, well-respected teachers in the early church visit the city of Corinth in the church because Corinth was an important city at the time. And so a guy like Apollos, who again, we learn about in the book of Acts, this guy was a gifted teacher very eloquent with his words, great at debating, whether it be Jew or Gentile. He knew the gospel. He knew how to engage other people. He was a dynamic teacher. And then you had the apostle Peter, the Peter, come to Corinth and visit this church. And what ends up happening through no fault of these teachers, they weren't asking for this. They weren't trying to do this. Cliques were building up around these guys. And so you had one clique around Paul, who was the founding leader and the apostle of the church of Corinth. You had a clique around Apollos, this gifted and dynamic teacher and leader. And then you had this clique around the apostle Peter, who was part of the original 12 disciples, best friends with Jesus Christ himself. And the problem though, wasn't just that, hey, I wanna hang out with the guys who really like Paul, or I'm gonna hang out with the Apollos fan club, or I'm gonna hang out with the Peter fan club. It wasn't just like people were kind of just sticking to their own kind of like, I only hang out with my gospel community, don't hang out with anybody else. It was bigger than that. It also wasn't a relatively harmless debate about like, who do you like? Do you like Paul better or do you like Peter better? It wasn't like we sit around and debate who's the greatest basketball player of all time. We all know the answer is Michael Jordan, but we still try to debate or sitting around debating, hey, who, which actor was the best Batman? We all know it was Christian Bale. It wasn't like that. This went deeper. There was actually quarreling, divisiveness, fights breaking out. The Corinthian church was outright divided by which leader they identified with. It became a competition about which leader was better and then who was more spiritual because you followed that leader. So we can imagine it went something like this. Well, the apostle Paul, he founded this church. He was our first spiritual father. We owe loyalty to him. And so if I'm gonna follow the apostle Paul, what this means is I am loyal to our first leader. Or this, man, Apollos, this guy can preach. This guy knows how to debate. He is great at apologetics. He is dynamic. I'm gonna learn a ton from him and he can speak better than Paul can. So I'm gonna follow him. He's the better leader. He's the leader we need. Or Peter. Man, this guy was one of the original 12. I mean, we're talking about the inner circle of Jesus. I mean, what better leader for the church than the apostle Peter who walked with Jesus and was one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church? I mean, come on. If we're talking about authority and prestige, Peter had it. Then you had the really super spiritual guys. Well, I don't follow Paul. I don't follow Apollos. I don't follow Peter. I follow Jesus. Man, that just sounds like a great spiritual move, doesn't it? But here's what that is. I don't need leaders. It's just me and Jesus. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. Oh, really? So you don't need the gift of leadership and the gift of community that God gives you. 
You see, that sounds spiritual at the end where some people are saying, I follow Christ, but it's the same thing. I'm dividing. Because here's at the heart of this, because there is a veneer of spiritual maturity here. Like, I want to follow the right leader because that way I'll be the most spiritually mature. We want to follow good leaders. We want to follow the right leader. Quality leaders matter. But Paul saw right through this. Paul saw what was really going on. This wasn't about, I follow a particular leader so that I can follow Christ better. No, this was about exalting self. This was about exalting leaders because when I exalted this leader and identified with this leader, then myself was exalted. I am exalted. And this is, this is what was crazy about this dynamic. And I'm sure it drove the apostle Paul nuts is that Paul and Apollos and Peter didn't ask for this. They're not false teachers. These are all great teachers, faithful teachers. But something inside the hearts of these Christians in Corinth wanted to use these leaders to exalt themselves, wanted to use the the position and the status that it gave them in order to elevate themselves in the church. This is essentially what they were saying. I want to be identified with the best teacher, the most important teacher, the the one with the most power and the most prestige, because look at the identity it gives me. I am part of the in crowd. I'm part of the, the, the few that follow this person. I'm part of the group that has the good teaching, the best teaching. I'm part of the group with the great leader, the articulate leader, the smart leader, the great leader who can build things. I'm part of the leader who knew Jesus. And so if I know this person, it puts me closer to Jesus. And in all of that, what's happening? I'm exalting myself. I'm exalting my status. Look how this gives me power. Look how I can get what I want over and above above others who would disagree with me. If I'm part of the group that follows the leader, if you're not part of this group, then you have nothing to say to me. They were elevating themselves. And look, this sounds childish and immature, because it is. And Paul's going to straight up call them that. Hey, you're children, you're immature. But let's not pretend we don't do the same thing. Let's not pretend that we aren't tempted to find identity and security and power through association with particular leaders. And that we do so with a veneer of spiritual maturity. But all along, we're exalting ourselves. Like, consider this. Let's just be honest this morning. How often have you associated with a particular leader, whether it's in the church or maybe the broader church, because of the status that it gives you? Because by following this person and associating with this person, you appear to be spiritually mature. Like, I follow Pastor Paul. Because when I follow Pastor Paul, look how mature I am. I am loyal to the pastor. Look how spiritually mature I am. I follow Pastor Chris because he's a really cool guy, he's really fun to talk to, and he's really smart. And by associating with that, man, I feel spiritual. I'm loyal to the pastor. Or how about this? Man, I follow Tim Keller, or I follow John Piper, or I follow John MacArthur, or if you don't know who any of those guys are, fill in your preferred teacher. Because these guys are spiritually mature, they're great preachers and teachers, and I want to be associated with their teaching because it shows I'm a spiritually serious person. 
There are people who like these other teachers out there and they're immature, but I like the mature teachers. How often have you done that? Maybe not out loud, but in your heart. And and so what you end up doing is you end up setting yourself up above others who don't follow the same person or don't have the same loyalty. Look, there's nothing wrong with following particular leaders. There's nothing wrong with being connected to, I hope you are, you feel a sense of loyalty to either myself or Pastor Paul. That's, That's good, that's healthy. It's good to like other teachers out there. But if the reason that is the case is so that you can elevate your status, so you can appear to be spiritual, that's divisive. That's exalting self. Or how about this? How often have you associated with a leader because that leader validated your particular pet theological issue or political issue? Meaning this, you have this this thing that that you're all about. And this particular leader validates that. And so you think if I associate with this leader, it's gonna give authority and it's gonna give status to my pet thing. I think this is often how we pick the leaders we're gonna follow. We already have sort of our preconceived notions about what we think is important and we find the leader that validates that. And if the leader doesn't validate that, well, then I'm gonna find somebody else or I'm gonna, I'm gonna push back on that leader or I'm, I'm, I'm gonna create turmoil. If people don't care about the same things I care about, well, then that's gonna cause division. Again, nothing wrong with following leaders who share the same conviction as you. This is good in some ways. But are you leveraging that leader? Are you associating with that leader as a means to give you the upper hand against those whom you disagree? Does it give you a sense of status in the control? Look, I'm in the right. Look who agrees with me. Or does it give you the sense of power? I can get my way because this leader agrees with me and I can get this leader to do what I want them to do. This is exalting self. And what is scary what is so scary and should humble us is that we do this completely convinced we're doing it because we're spiritually mature. We think we're doing this to take a stand for truth and righteousness all the while we're exalting ourselves. We can deceive ourselves profoundly and we end up becoming divisive when we exalt ourselves. Or how about this one? Do you say, I follow Christ. Like I don't follow any leaders. I don't need leaders. I follow Jesus. And so you're this kind of free floating person within the church community, never submitting to the authority of church community, to to a group of believers, never coming under the authority and leadership of pastors. And again, this can sound so spiritual. I follow Jesus. I have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus tells me what to do. Look, friends, This is exalting self. Do you know that Jesus calls you into community and he gives you leaders for your good? If we think we can just free float, me and Jesus, we're exalting ourself. Here's what we're doing. We're hiding behind the veneer of spiritual maturity, but we don't want to be led. We're hiding behind the veneer of spiritual maturity, but we don't want to be confronted or corrected. We always want the trump card. God told me to do this. Look, if I had a nickel for every time I heard someone say, 
God told me to do fill in the blank, or God is leading me to do fill in the blank, and what they're doing is obviously immature, or they made that decision without any counsel or asking people in community about whether they should do that. If I had a nickel for every time I heard someone say that, I wouldn't be driving a Honda Civic. We do this thinking it's spiritually mature, but it's exalting self. And when we exalt self, we divide. And this is how we know we're exalting self, because look at the effect. It unhealthily and destructively divides. It divides people along the lines of something other than Jesus. It becomes more about the person and their issue than it does about Jesus. And this always happens. The moment we start creating community around something other than Christ, that thing slowly but surely becomes elevated above Jesus. And what we end up doing is we end up elevating leaders that will validate our issues, that will validate our community built around this thing. And we'll end up pushing out and being divisive against all the people who do not agree. We'll see them as less spiritually mature. We'll tell ourselves it has to do with godliness and truth and we're taking a stand. But Jesus, in his authority, in his community, and the things he has called you to do, become muted. And we also do this. And this is Paul's point in verse 13. We end up segmenting Jesus. We end up sort of partitioning him out. This is in verse 13 when, when Paul asks, is Christ divided? In the Greek, it's literally, is Christ partitioned out? It's this image of, can we chop Jesus up into little pieces and, hey, you get this little piece and you get this little piece and you get this little piece. And this is what happens, friends. When we start to make our pet issues the thing, we sort of focus on all of that as if that is the entirety of Christ's teaching and we sort of push everything else to the side. And so we start to cherry pick our discipleship. We start to cherry pick what it means to follow Jesus. Oh yeah, I'll really care about being holy, but I don't care anything about loving and serving. I'll care really about loving and serving, but I won't care anything about going deeper in my knowledge and communion with the Lord. Like I wanna go and evangelize. But you know what? I really don't care all that much about what it means to be holy. Like, look, all of those things in particular are important, but if we divide them up, we're dividing Christ. If we're trying to find our little communities, I want to hang with the people who care about evangelism. I want to hang with people who care about Bible study. I want to hang with the people who care about service. Let's be over here, those that care about holiness. We start to divide Christ up, and all that is is cherry-picking our discipleship. All that is is dividing the body. Do you see how this is exalting self? Do you see how this is making us, in our preference, in our soapbox, the thing over Jesus? This is what the Apostle Paul is confronting. When we exalt self, we divide. But when we exalt Christ, we unite. To flip the script, to reorient them to unity, Paul points away from these leaders and he points to Christ. He asked in verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Look, with just three quick questions, Paul cuts right through their nonsense and gets right to the heart of the issue. Look, 
Can issues divide Christ? Can our pet issues divide Christ? Can our soapboxes divide Christ? Can our political parties and our political beliefs and our political loyalties divide Christ? Are the theo- pet theological issues that we have and the preferences that we have and the preferences for philosophy of ministry, can they divide Christ? The answer is obviously no. And here is why, church. Christ isn't divided because Christ is the king and he has all authority and all power on heaven and earth. Christ is too glorious. His word is too authoritative. His work is too powerful for us to partition him. No, when Christ rules and reigns, we all come under his authority. We all submit and we submit our issues. We submit our soapboxes. We submit our preferences to the king. The glory of Christ is so great. Christ's power is so comprehensive as Colossians 1 says he is reconciling all things to himself, which means our preferences, our soapboxes, our our little issues that we want to make the thing, they fall on their face in front of Christ. They are brought under his authority and his glory. Christ unites things. Christ cannot be divided. Then Paul asks, was Paul Paul crucified for you? Look, did the apostle Paul or did Apollos or Peter or any other leader accomplish salvation for you? Did the people that you follow, the people that you associate with, the people that you put your identity in, your status in, your sense of control, are those people the ones that accomplish salvation for you and for me? No. No, they are not the ones that saved us. Are you saved by your political beliefs or your philosophy of ministry or your parenting methods or your education philosophy? No, Christ saves us. Christ in Christ alone, the person of Jesus Christ, that is who saves us. This is the point the apostle Paul is making. He's saying, stop looking at these leaders. Stop looking at your pet issues and the things that are causing you divide and look at the glory of Christ and what he has done to accomplish salvation. Look, friends, Christ is the one who stepped from heaven, God the Son, and put on humanity and stepped into our sin-cursed world and entered into our pain and our suffering. Christ is the one who cast out demons and healed the sick. Christ is the one who loved us so much that he laid down his life for us, took the wrath of God for us. the, the, The judgment that you and I deserve, the judgment that you and I should experience because of our sin and our rebellion, Christ took that on himself. No man did that. No other leader did that. Jesus did that. Jesus is the one who was resurrected in power and glory, giving you victory over sin offering full and complete forgiveness for you. Jesus is the one who ascended into heaven is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is the one who has all authority in heaven on earth. Jesus is the one who poured out his spirit upon you. Jesus is the one who one day will return and renew all things. And Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only path to life. Jesus is the only way we can know God the Father. Jesus is the only name under heaven where which we can be saved. This is why, this is why we are united in Christ because only Christ is glorious enough to unite us. Only Christ is worthy enough 
to unite us. I don't care how great a pastor is, how great a leader is, they are not worthy of uniting us. Only Christ is. Because only Christ has accomplished salvation. Christ is all. Our identity, our life, our power, our hope, our security, the foundation for our community is Jesus. And Jesus unites us over and above any other issue. Church, look, the the things that we may gravitate towards, the differences that we experience in community, I'm not saying these things are unimportant. Some of these differences are important. Some of these differences have to be worked out and wrestled through. Some of these differences do create tension in community. But if all of those things are viewed through the lens of Jesus, if all of those things pale in comparison to what Christ has accomplished and who Jesus is, if all of those things become secondary to the foundation of Jesus being the foundation of this community, then we can be united. We don't have to let those things divide us. We can be united in Christ because Christ is that glorious. And so friends, we live in unity as we exalt Jesus, as Jesus becomes our joy, as Jesus becomes our life, as Jesus becomes our identity and our power and the status that we have as we build our community around Jesus. We're united. And those differences need not threaten our unity. And now let me clarify something here. The unity that Paul speaks of is not bland uniformity. It's not as if we all have to become monotone and live the exact same way and talk the exact same way and have all the same opinions and believe everything exactly the same way. That's uniformity. And look, friends, the power of Christ doesn't need that to happen to create unity. That's man-made unity. We're threatened by difference. Jesus isn't. His power submits difference to himself and allows a beautiful diversity. Here's here's what Paul talks about, what what Paul means when he's saying, I want you to agree. The the connotation here is the idea of harmony. Uh, We had a worship team play here. You've been to um, concerts and you've seen people play musical instruments. What's going on? Different instruments that are played differently, that have different parts, that sound different. And so plenty of differences around. If you try to play a guitar the same way that you try to play a a trumpet, it's gonna go weird. And so difference matters, difference is important, but what unifies them? The music. When they're playing the same notes, when they're playing the same harmony, that difference becomes beautiful. This is the unity Christ accomplished. Unity in the midst of great diversity a glory and a power in Christ that pulls us together despite differences. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. We can stand united in the midst of difference because what calls us together is greater than what would separate us. And then what this also means is we can receive community as a gift. We can receive it as a gift Christ gives us in order to be discipled and to grow and to learn what it means to love one another and serve one another and be sanctified, transformed, because living in community is hard. You wanna grow in your faith. You wanna grow in being like Jesus. You wanna grow in loving, for one, loving other people, serving other people, sharing the gospel and discipling. You wanna grow in any, any sense of the term, be part of the church, because I guarantee you, you will grow. 
And friends, this is also how we should consider our secondary issues as well. This is, this is Paul's point about baptism. Look, the Corinthian church wanted to use baptism as like this badge of honor. Hey, look at me. I was baptized by Paul. I am in the super extra special group. And the apostle Paul goes, man, I am glad I didn't baptize very many of you. If I knew that's how you were going to use baptism, man, I wish I wouldn't have baptized any of you if you were going to turn it on its head. And so Paul says, Christ didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. Is what Paul is saying that baptism is unimportant? No. Is, is he suggesting that theological beliefs about things like the end times or spiritual gifts or these other, other beliefs are unimportant? No. What he's saying is this. Apart from Christ and glorifying Christ and pointing to Jesus, they are pointless. They, they don't matter because they're empty of power, they're empty of purpose. But as they point to Jesus, as they exalt Jesus, as they build people up in Jesus, then they have meaning. And so Paul was saying, I wasn't sent to baptize, I was sent to preach the gospel. That's the tip of the spear. That's the important piece. Baptism has meaning because it's connected to the gospel. And so we go and we preach the gospel, we exalt Jesus, and all these secondary issues and theological beliefs that do matter, they have power and they have meaning as they exalt Christ. That church is what it means to be united in Jesus. So let's live in unity by submitting our secondary issues to Christ. Let's lift up Jesus, not ourselves. Let's be humble with one another. Let the thing that we most want for one another is that you know Christ, you love Christ, you're thriving in Christ, your faith is deep in Christ. Not if we agree on all these little particulars. Like what I want for you is not that you agree with me on my view of baptism or my view of the end times. What I want for you is that you know Jesus and you're experiencing his power in your life and you're communing with him and he's your joy. And I want our community to be fined by that. Yes, we have theological beliefs. Yes, we take theology very seriously. Yes, these things matter. But they only matter as they point to Jesus, our life, Jesus, our hope, Jesus, our identity, Jesus, the foundation of our community. And so church, as we exalt Christ, we are united. We unite. Friends, this will be challenging because there's much that could divide us. But we have the Spirit. Christ himself has unified us in him. And so we can be unified. And church, in a culture that is increasingly fraying at the seams, in a culture that is increasingly divided and speaking hatred and is trying everything that it can to, to hold it together, what would it look like for the church to be united? What would it look like for the church to say, hey, you want to experience unity, real unity? It's not found through politics. It's not found, found through education. It's not found through agreeing on all the particulars of how a, a nation should be run. It's not in following a particular political leader. It's found in Jesus. And it is the church models that. As the church demonstrates deep, true unity amongst difference, and the world looks back and goes, how is that possible? How can a group of people, different ethnicities, different languages, different cultures, different ways of educating their kids, different ways of uh, parenting, 
different philosophies of ministry, different views of different theological beliefs, all love each other and be united and not let that divide them. And we can say, let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me point you to his glory and his power. Find your life and your joy and come be part of this community. Church, that is the power, not only for us as we live in unity, but also the power as we put this on display in our city. That is what the Apostle Paul, that is what God's word is calling us to in this passage. And so can we receive what we need to receive this morning? Can we humble ourselves where we need to humble ourselves? But we can also, can we take a step forward in hope, knowing what God has called us to is a glorious thing, a beautiful thing, a hopeful thing. Let's pray.